What's up everybody, Clint Esposito here with number 119 of the Two Wheels to Freedom show. Uh, this time we have Dale Spangler. He's actually been in the motorsports industry for 30 years and started a cool uh, media business creating content for companies. Um, but first, this podcast is brought to you by the Two Wheels to Freedom Fest, which is April 19th and 20th in Winsboro, South Carolina. Go to twowheelstofreedom.com for all the information. What's up, Dale? How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic. You know, it's Friday. Got most of my work done for the week. Finished up yesterday. I had three jobs. I was writing that I, I had like a post-AIM Expo uh, assignment that I was working on. To, I'm contracted with a, a guy that works for eBay Motors and does all the blog work on there. And so anything from automotive to two wheels, you know, cool. and so I'm focused on two and four wheels, like quads and all that kind of stuff. So I had a little assignment from AM Expo. So it was pretty fun. I walked around and I found three like outstanding things that I thought kind of really stood out from the show. So yeah, got all my stuff done and new idols album came out today. One of my favorite bands. So I'm pretty pumped about that. I just got to listen in before we hopped on here. So, so you're yeah, having a good well. week. Oh yeah. Was aim just yeah, last you know, weekend? Yeah, so it was last week, so it was Tuesday through Thursday, and uh, I just went Tuesday and Wednesday, and yeah, I think I got like almost 30,000 steps in over two days, so it was a lot of walking, but it was great. You know, like I feel like I reconnected with a lot of people hadn't seen for a while, like like for example, I didn't even know like Scott Sepkovic, probably a guy you know you know pretty well from Monster and all that. Uh, him, Jeremy McGrath, Bob Harrow, and Eddie Cole all started a new bicycle brand called 101 Bikes. And so I'm walking around and I see Scott Sepkovic's like, hey, Dale. And I'm like, God, like I hadn't seen him for probably 20 years. We grew up racing together in western Pennsylvania, you know. And so and then I think he moved to California and kind of he's got all his stuff going down. I think with Arma, he's got Arma. He's got all kinds of stuff going on, you know. So anyways, yes, people, like so many situations like that where I just felt like saw all these people I hadn't seen for a while, made a bunch of new connections. I think I got a couple of new brands that I might be able to do some work for. So yeah, it was a good show. It was worth it. Awesome. So uh, well, let's start with how you got into motorsports. You obviously said that you grew up racing in Western Pennsylvania. Yep. yep. Yeah. So I grew up in Northeast Ohio, actually, like east of Cleveland, up on Lake Erie, and uh, so I would go race. You know, Northern, Southern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, places like High Point. You know, and. Mount Morris, PA. So, I mean, those were kind of, that was actually my closest national track by the time I, I got to the pro level. I think it was three hours to high point. So that was like my, kind of my home race, if you will. Yeah. And then uh, we had Troy, which is maybe four and a half hours, Southern Ohio. But yeah, so I was a racer just like a lot of us, you know, until I was, I want to say 19, I think. And my dad and I had a little pact where if I don't have a, a factory ride by then, then I'd probably look to do something else. And, uh, so then I, I tried to be normal for a couple of years and went and got like a drafting degree, like a little uh, two-year degree and, and uh, worked for a construction company as a commercial contractor and an estimator and did all kinds of things that I thought would be fun to do and normal, you know? Yeah. But then I realized, nah, it's not really me. So then I went back and tried to race again. And at the same time, took my first job in the industry with Cometic Gasket in uh, Cleveland, like kind of east of Cleveland. That was 1994, and uh, yeah, after that, I was kind of just been different companies, 
throughout my career. This is actually my 31st year in the in the industry. So <laughs> awesome. I don't know where it's all gone. <laughs> yeah, you realize quickly that when this uh, something like motorcycles is in your blood, a quote unquote normal job just doesn't like fuel the fire a lot of times. Absolutely. I was getting, you know, there's a couple of my jobs, you know, when I was younger there, I think I was just kind of the, the racer <laughs> punk, if you will, where I just didn't, you know, I didn't respect when I was going to these jobs and, and just kind of messed around a lot, you know, and so I, <laughs> I think I, I went through a few of those, you know, jobs where I think I probably got fired at one. I remember screwing around one day and taking like rolls of duct tape and putting it on uh, broom handles and like throwing them across the, you know, warehouse trying to hit people with it. And I blew out a light in the ceiling, and that was the end of that one. So I got fired on that one. But I think that was the one and only other time I got I got fired. But yeah, um, I don't know. I just that you know I hadn't grown up yet and still thought I was a racer in my mind, and you know probably deserved more than I I did and. But yeah, getting those industry jobs, I think it sort of grounded me. And just at, over time, I just gradually kind of embraced it. And I've tried to get out of the industry a few times through the years, but I just, uh, this is where my value's at. And so now I've kind of just turned that around and embraced it. Well, that's when I stopped riding for a living, you know, like a, officially I was same thing, going to, you know, just go and do something else. And it's like, just like yourself, the amount of time we've put into the sport, it's like, what are you going to do? Or the industry, you're just like, I'm just going to walk away and start over from zero. So there's a lot of that as well. Absolutely. I mean, really, that's the more I think about it, I'm like, that's where my values at in power sports with all my experience. Sometimes it kind of works against me. You know, like I've tried to apply for jobs and I think they look at me and go, well, that much experience, there's no way he's going to want too much money or whatever. But it's not really the case. And so, you know, a lot of times, right. but but yeah, I just kind of, a, I don't know, I guess embrace the fact that that's where my value is at. And so, um, you know, it's hard for me to go command like a pretty good, you know, hourly wage in industries other than, you know, power sports, just because they don't, they don't see the same value in it. So yeah, like I said, I've kind of embraced it and it's been fun. You know, like I'll use the example of eBay Motors again, because like I looked at, I was looking at their site yesterday and they, they have a really good group of riders. Uh, this contractor I work for, he he's contract, and then he goes and hires all the writers. And so it was cool to see like all these fellow writers that I'm going, wow, these these people really have have, have accomplished a lot. And so it made me kind of feel pretty good about being part of that group, you know, contributing to their to their blog. And so, yeah, it's just kind of neat to see others others kind of similar path, you know, in different industries. A lot of them are from the auto industry, so just kind of seeing a similar path is sort of reassuring, I guess, if you will. Yeah. Um... I feel like I like anything I can do must not be that hard because I can do it. And I feel like maybe you have a touch of the same where it's like you're too close into it. So you don't like realize your value really because yep. you're just like, oh, it's just me writing stuff. But you don't realize because you're so deep into this that other people couldn't just come into this space and write something where you or I would be like, oh, that makes sense, or that was a good article. You'd be like, this guy knows nothing about this at all. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you can tell, like, especially, I mean, we know power sports has its own lingo, its own, you know, lingua franca, if you will, but it's, it's if you don't know it, you know, it's obvious, you know, and so that comes across, of course, in writing, you know, that, that's where I'm feeling like I'm finding my value where they hire somebody like me to have that power sports voice that's authentic, you know, and in some cases I've even, I've even come across where like some of the editors kind of start changing things. And I'm like, no, no, that's actually, this is, this is the correct lingo. Like don't change it, you know, because right. they're used to like speaking differently. And so, yeah, I've, I've even had situations like that, but um, yeah, it, it's been fun. I feel like I've, 
grown so much in the last probably five years with, you know, writing full time. I was just looking, thinking about it the other day and I'm like, wow, there's, I mean, I was looking at my portfolio, just adding a few things to it. I'm like, there's so many things I've written in the last five years that I forgot half of them, you know? So it's, <laughs> it's well, that's, funny. I'm on your site. I actually have your site pulled up and I just, I'm on the work page and mm -hmm. just all the companies that you've worked with, you know, uh, yeah. Are a lot of big eBay Motors, obviously, but Pod, the knee braces, and I guess other protective gear as well. West Weisco, uh, Dealer News, Seat Time, Wasner. I mean, a lot of good big companies. So, yep, Dino Jets, another one. Onyx is probably my longest client. Onyx Maps. It's that GPS app for off roaders. And oh, cool. Yeah, it was probably a couple months after I started you know, like my freelance buzz media business, which I've actually had buzz media, the LLC I created back in, see, what was it now? 2016, because I have dirtbuzz.com. I had this website that I created that, you know, I'm going to try and focus on the off-road, like enduro GNCC space. I felt like it was underserved, you know, with content. And so I focused on that for a couple of years. And I just realized that I love creating content, but I don't really like having to go out and solicit sponsors <laughs> yeah. and ask for money. So that's just kind of like where I just, I don't know, it was fun for a while, but I also think it helped me hone my craft of writing so that now where I'm at now, it all those years of me kind of practicing, if you will, um, has helped me to where I'm at right now. So I think it's kind of gave me a leg up. So yeah, I've had the LLC since 2016 and then Buzz Media content creation I started in 2020. And that was after I got laid off from my last job at Tucker Power Sports during COVID. And uh, yeah, I just decided, well, I kind of tried to find some jobs and uh, wasn't having any luck for three, four months. And so I just said, well, let's try it on my own. And luckily enough, I made enough content, you know, contra uh, contacts through the years did a lot of media relations so i feel like i knew enough people to be able to you know get a leg up with you know a few brands right away like evs being one of them evs sports and then onyx so yeah i'm really thankful to those two companies for just kind of stepping up and giving me a chance because i feel like once you start going and like you can see my portfolio like it starts building and then i feel like it helps open more doors and so yeah. it's been going well you know it's slow steady you know i, I can't say steady because some days some months are rough other months are you know, full of jobs, but, um, yeah, it's good though. I like it. What would you say is your favorite content to create? You mentioned writing a lot. Is that what you would say that your chosen medium is or? Yeah, absolutely. Like the podcasting thing, when I was doing that, that's really something that's kind of out of my wheelhouse in a way, just because I'm more of a pretty introverted, to be honest. Like, I'm not naturally a person that, like, will go up and, you know, stand in front of people and talk and, and that kind of thing. But I think if it's something I'm knowledgeable about that I feel comfortable enough to talk about it, you know, and that's where I think I was okay with the podcast. But and I think it pushed me a little bit. And so, but I also think it helps me with my writing, doing those podcasts, because conducting these type of interviews like you're doing with me right now, it's just another thing you're practicing to where when I would do a written interview, like I, I recently did a piece for Upshift Online um, with Mason Klein, the, the Dakar racer. And so, I mean, I just, I'm able, I feel like I have this skill now where I'm able to get somebody on the phone and get them to relax and really kind of loosen up and tell me, tell me deeper parts of the story. And then I took that podcast and I just transcribed the whole thing. You know, it took me forever, but it was cool. It was worth it. I enjoyed the process the entire time. So I just feel like those types of deep interviews where you can really dig some kind of nuggets out 
get people to open up a little more than usual. That, those are some of my favorite interviews. So, yeah, written written words definitely where where my wheelhouse is. I'd say probably some of my favorite things I've ever written are my two musical motorcycle pieces that I've done. One with Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers, lead singer for that band. That was I think four three four years ago now. That was when uh, the magazine Vana was Meta. Now it's Vana. Uh, and then my recent one I did with uh, Connor, another musician from, he's actually from Maryland, so uh, kind of over in your area. He yeah. just moved back. He was living in L.A. and, um, you know, like an old racer like us and decided he wanted to chase his dream of, you know, becoming a musician. And Cool. So, yeah, I got to do an interview with him. I just I just love that kind of stuff where you combine two of my biggest passions, music and motorcycles, in one one written piece. Yeah, that's always good when you get to combine, like... Uh the same thing i'm always trying to get comedy and motorcycles merged together because i have yeah exactly you know a specific interest in both of them so it's kind of like how do i make this happen (laughs) i know if you can can do the two together it's even better right (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) i want to talk to uh rick thorne because he's doing comedy now he's a bmxer but He's now doing comedy, which I just like the crossover there. And there's a lot of, you know, especially BMX is very close to motorcycles, obviously. So, yeah, I feel like there would be a lot of uh, connection there as to as far as like lifestyles and all that. I like BMX and skate guys are just hilarious to me because they're always just doing something like shenanigans. They're up to something, you know, like messing with people or just. There's always a bit of comedy, it seemed like, involved. <laughs> yeah, they're wilder. Because they don't have to, it's like, once you don't have to buy a full motorcycle, it's like oh, you, yeah. can, you can screw around more. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, you're carrying just a skateboard around that if you lose it, big deal, you can run away instead of a $10,000 dirt bike yeah. and get taken away from you. <laughs> I was always even um, uh, jealous of, like, BMXers a little bit, but n- not as much as like skateboarders. But I'm like, think about them traveling. They just have like a bag with some boards in it, and they're like good to go. And I'm like, need to haul this big bike and a ramp and whatever else. I always wonder what it was like to be a BMXer meeting girls because I'm thinking like, how do you talk to a girl about like, yeah, I ride, I ride BMX bikes, you know? Like for some reason, I just think that sometimes some some people might think it's kind of like. That's funny. I don't know. Well, I Maybe learned from FMX. You, they need to see you do it. Otherwise, yeah, the story doesn't work. You know, like because most <laughs> yeah. don't have enough reference with it. Where you're like, I jump dirt bikes and hang off of the back of them, and they're like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, then they see it, and then they're like, "What?" Yeah, then they're that's something like, out. You, they got to see it first, and then you got to talk to them. Otherwise, you're, you know, not doing anything. I remember, like, back in the freestyle days, I'll kind of date myself. Like, when I, I think I told you I worked at Smith Optics when I was going to some of those. Uh, the, the, the line that I always remember guys using was they were, you know, hey, we're under, we're in town, we're underwater welders, you know, like, and that was their kind of line to meet girls. So, <laughs> dude, we used to <laughs> say all kinds of stupid stuff. Just tell them we were in a <laughs> band called the Mayonnaise Cannons. And, uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> just stupid shit because you know that it's like doesn't matter you'll be gone in a couple of days um so That's you funny. worked for smith um yep you were the rider rep yeah so yeah so i was uh 
let's see, I'll kind of go back a little bit further. So I had that, my first job was Kemetic, and then I got a job in Italy to work, working with Alpine Stars, where I was awesome. the first American, this was 1998, or 97, 98, I lived actually in Oslo, Italy, where their factory is, over in, which is near Venice, like about cool. 45 minutes north. So I worked for them for, I think, almost two years, drove a van around Europe everywhere, just like going to races, going to media offices, uh, like go to went to the UK to meet Jeremy McGrath because the owner of Alpine Stars said, hey, you know, he's by himself there, so he needs a American friend to be there. So I drove, cool. drove, loaded the van up, drove 14 hours, whatever, across the English Channel to the UK. So yeah, I had that job, just burned me out big time. I came back to the US and was sitting around for about four months and realized I need to make some money, get a job. So then my, I was actually a Smith athlete back in the day uh, myself. And so the, the guy that was the you know, manager of the power sports division is named Hook Taylor. You, um, you may have heard of him. Rich, Rich Taylor's dad. Oh, okay. X brand goggles. So that's it. his dad. So he, he was, you know, he sponsored me for years. And he's like, hey, we've got this opening for the motorsport promotion manager. I want you to have it. You know, I, I think you'd be perfect for it. You know, I was just kind of like, again, kind of dumb. I'd come back from Italy. I'm 25 years old, just kind of a mess. My life's a mess a little bit. And I'm like, man, I just was living in Italy. I don't want to move to Idaho. I don't know anything yeah. about <laughs> Idaho. You know, like this, like the least populated, one of the least populated states in the country. So I said no. <laughs> You're like, I'd rather stay <laughs> in then, Ohio. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then after about three more weeks or maybe a month or so, like I'm sitting around and go, man, I'm still, I'm just spending money. I'm not making any money. So... I call up Hook, and he's like, you got to take the damn job, you know? So I'm like, yes, please <laughs> take the job. And that's how I ended up in Sun Valley. That's where Smith was. Cool. Uh, really difficult place to live, obviously, because it's an expensive place, you know? So, um, but, you know, amazing job, amazing company. And, yeah, I was going to all the national super, not all of them, but we had three of us. So, like, Rich, myself, another guy named Mark Ferris, who's now the CEO of Fast House. Okay. Uh, he was at Smith forever. Um, like the, between the three of us, we were kind of the guys that went to the races and handed out all the goggles. You know, like it was pretty crude then. Yeah. We didn't have any van or anything to like work out of. We had rental cars with bags of goggles. And so I just remember like so many nights, like before a, a mud race, like at Mount Morris one year, it was a mud race. And I'm just freaking out because I've got 100 pair of goggles that I got to prepare for a mud race for all these riders and building, you know, tear-offs over the top of roll-offs and all this shit yeah. so it was just chaotic just burn me out you know so, what year do you think yeah this that's is? how i ended up with smith what's that what year is this so that's probably let's see so i i took the job in 99 at smith and then like early into the 2000s is when i was really probably going to the most races so, so like I, 2000 I, 2001 i rode uh East Coast Nationals, or tried to qualify 2000 and 2001. That's why you started to say that, and I'm like, I think I was at that Mount Morris. I'm like, what year is this? Because I was at one. I mean, it rains there almost every year, but I was doing the timeline, and I'm like, I think I was there for that one. Yeah, I, I remember like distinctly, like a really stressful year was that the year that Greg Albertine won the the uh, outdoor title. And uh, gosh, I want to, was that like 2001 or two or something like that? So. One of those yeah. years, but it was just so stressful because, you know, like preparing his goggles, like he was very particular mm. and, you know, like at that, I think I remember making one mistake where I was at a race and 
I was like, why is he wearing tear-offs? And like, we're putting like Scott tear-offs on Smith goggles and because it just, we didn't have a good setup. And so I'm like, he needs to be wearing roll-offs. You know, like he, he's, he's a Smith athlete. He needs to wear yeah. roll-offs. So I remember giving him roll-offs and he was just, he lost it. Like he was not happy with me. And in <laughs> hindsight, I'm like, that was pretty dumb. I just gave him goggles he's not used to wearing, but <laughs> yeah, That's funny. but he won the title. And like, I remember we, we special made like, like hand painted, uh, two sets of roll-offs. We had a silver pair. They looked like they were chrome. And then we had a gold pair and we, he wore those, the silver pair on the, like the penultimate, the, the next to last round. And then the round that he won the title, which I think was at steel city, he wore the gold ones. And to this day, like it showed up in the ad, you know, like the Suzuki yeah. ad and all that stuff. So it was pretty cool. Like that was kind of a win for us because they'd never won anything like that. And uh, but we had a good team. You know, like I was thinking back, we had like Josh Hill, we had the Alessi brothers, uh, we had Zach Osborne. I mean, we had all these people that were just went on to become like huge heavy hitters. You know, like yeah. Ryan Villapoto at one point was a Smith athlete. Like I always love their product. I'm, to this day, I'm still kind of somewhat loyal to that brand just because I feel like I'm. Sort of a part of the history, I guess. Yeah, well, you are. Um, <laughs> and again, it's, you know, just stuff to look back on where you were like, you know, I did a lot of that, or at least I was there and helped. And, uh, yep. you know, I guess that's the appreciation you get. <laughs> no, I mean, the people oh, yeah. in there, but like for the general public, they don't, they will never know. But it's like you still have your, you know, I have things, places I worked at where, uh, you know, now they're doing something and it's just like you were there at the beginning and we're able to help. Yep. But yeah, it's funny. Like it's, it's a lot more stressful. I think than people probably realize on the surface, like those type of jobs, every time I see a mud, like those first mud to mud supercrosses this year, I was just like, Oh man. Yeah. You know, I bet the goggle guys are just freaking out right now because they have the most stressful job. <clears throat> well, and because those guys are like you said, they're picky, and if something happens, right, and they're, like, listen, everybody's goggles are going to get screwed up in that type of race. It doesn't matter. And it's just, like, how early you happen to get splashed or whatever it is. Yep. But if they have a bad <laughs> night, they need somebody to blame, you know, or they're oh, yeah. at least in a bad mood already. So then guess what? The, he had to take his goggles off, so you're getting an earful. And yeah, we had some, fault. we had, like, Chad Reed. And uh, Tim Ferry were probably two of the hardest guys to deal with. Like, and at that time, like it was exactly like you said, man. If it's they had a bad moto, man, like goggles were just shit. You know, yeah. like some, they weren't <laughs> working. I, I get splashed, whatever. It's not working right. But then when they won, there was everything was fine. You know, yeah. it's kind of that's where it was just it was it was a tough job after it just ground on you because you felt like you never really could could have like a moment to enjoy it because you're always were just worried about the next thing. You know, yeah. or so it was, yeah, it was definitely one of the, it's funny, like Mathis and I had talked about it, like when I talked to him a few times on his show and yeah, he was, cause he did goggles for a little while too. Yeah. So we just reminisce about like, yeah, that job is just thankless. <laughs> yeah. I actually just heard them after one of the mud races, they were talking about it and he was saying the same thing. He was just like, uh, he said somebody, I don't remember who it was, but they, or even who he was working for, but they got splashed, and the second moto, the guy comes out wearing another pair of goggles, like another brand, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, the goggles suck. I couldn't see anything. He's like, everybody had their goggles off. Like, it's a mud race. I don't know what you think was going to happen here, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, and then there's then there's the weird aspect of, 
lots of superstition, lots of little weird things that quirky things that riders have. And, yeah. You know, like I just remember, like I tried to be strategic about you know like colors of goggle straps, things like that. Like you wouldn't think that would be a big deal, right? Where some guy would get a pair of goggles and then another one would see it and they'd be like, well, why didn't I get that pair of goggles? I, yeah. I want those. Like, what's he's more special than me? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I felt like I was a therapist sometime having to juggle all these situations where make sure they all felt like they were special. <laughs> juggle all these egos. Yeah. You know, I would say that's one of our issues with um, the sport and being bigger, like, and there being more money in the sport. Like, let's say... Uh, people that are fans of football or hockey or whatever whatever, will buy their favorite player's jersey, right, on their team. Mm -hmm. But motocross guys are like, I'm not buying a Kenny Roxon jersey. I'm going to wear my own jersey. I ride too. You know, and yeah. everybody's like, I, I want a discount or free gear or, you know, because everybody's in the sport to some kind of, level and I guess that's just action sports in general um you know is that it's harder to you know like pass the sniff test with action sports people because most of them really do the sports people that are into skateboarding probably skateboard at a level BMX they do it most people yep. after high school are not playing football any longer yep that's just end of yeah, story you're done Power sports, I think they and action sports in general, like you said, they, people want a participation uh, participation discount. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of a participation trophy, they want the discount. You know, which is, I mean, that's why there's there's things like you know like Rich Rich's uh, you know MX sponsor. You know, I mean, they, I think yeah. he's done really well with it. You know, I was talking to him at the AIM Expo, and he's like, man, they, they refurbished the site, and he goes, it's doing better than ever. You know, because I feel like there's a lot of people that, you know, a lot of people get involved in. You know, a lot more women, you know, other just, and now the vet scene is, I just saw where like, uh, Pinkery just came out with the new podcast where it's kind of focused on, uh, I think it's, what's his name? Rick Doherty. Um, but it's focused on vet riders, you know, I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. You know, like, I mean, the more yeah. they like, kind of like micro audiences that you can address, I think it just makes the sport grow that much more. Yeah. It's funny that the vet thing when I was young, there was like a couple of guys that raced the old guys class and you were like, those dudes are awesome. And that was it. And now it's like the, almost the biggest classes at the race is like the vet <laughs> classes now. Oh yeah. So yep. it's kind of crazy. That really has proudly enough. It's our generations, I would say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's guys <laughs> like my age, you know, like, um, I'll be 55 next month, and so, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of guys my age, and like my old co-host on the Pit Pass there when I was doing it, Dave Selecki, I mean, he calls himself a professional um, vet practice rider, you know, so I like that, you know, he's like, I don't even put race in, in there, it's just I'm a professional vet practice rider, I just, you know, ride with my friends and, and family and have a good time with it. Yeah, I have a lot, of, there's a lot of guys actually, so... I grew up in New Jersey. I moved to Georgia for like 13 years. And when I came back, the same guys that had tracks when I was younger, you know, they were in their 30s or whatever when I was in my teens and 20s. And now, same thing. They're 50 to 60, and they got, you know, still manicured perfectly private tracks. And they just ride those, and sometimes they'll go to a practice day. Uh, but they're getting to the practice day early so that it's not all beat to hell already. 
and they're riding yeah. and they're getting <laughs> out of there. Like they just good, great riders. I like I said, I've been around them my entire life. Used to race, and they just you know go and ride their own practice tracks all the time now and just enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's cool how there's almost like a it's like factory vet riders now. You got guys like I mean, these are all guys that I race with, like Mike Brown and Mike yeah. Treadwell. Keith Johnson, uh, you know, Barry Carson from your neck of the woods. Yep. Like these are all the guys that are just kind of crushing it in the, uh, the vet class. You know, John Gruy, another one, you know, like yep. from Michigan, like we, I raced against him quite a bit, you know, back in the day. And so like all these guys, it's kind of, it's kind of wild for me to see it. Cause I'm like, I'm to the point where like, you know, I'm, I'm overweight, but I'm like, so I'm just like, yeah, my, my day is probably on the, on the track or gone just cause I don't really, I know I'm re- I'm going to be realistic with myself. I don't have the fitness. You know, my wrist would still want to probably twist pretty good, but I'd probably end up on the ground. So I just yeah. <laughs> I probably know that's behind me. But but it's cool to see those guys just keep going. And now they've got kids. And like I think Barry's listen, his son like his he's a, he's fast. now on the pro, on the pro gate. You know, yeah. so pretty wild. Um, one time I beat Mike Treadwell at an arena cross. It was super muddy, oh. and I got a third. And I beat Mike Treadwell. I remember when I was like all over him, and I'm like. What the hell is going on? <laughs> what is going on right now? And then I passed him and I was like, that was awesome. I still tell people about <laughs> it, obviously. I'm like, I beat Mike Treadwell. <laughs> Great um, guy, though. I feel like there's just so many of those guys that are all just, like, we would all, back then, we, we all kind of hang out in Florida. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Gene Newmack. I don't know if you remember him at all. Yep. But yeah, so he had a house in Florida and then, like, you know, Treadwell and, you know, all these different people that were all kind of congregate there and we all ride together and train, air quotes, because we don't really know how to train. Do but. you know uh, Mark Pillion? I know the name, but I can't remember. He's a Jersey guy. So when I started, okay. and he um, he raced Supercross and stuff, was a 125, mainly 125 guy. Um, Robbie Hayes, probably another one, I think, from your neck of the wood. I think he was I up don't... that way. So Mark actually lived a town over from me. And uh, I showed up to his door one day when I was 15 and was like, hey, I want to try to go to Loretta's, blah, blah, blah. You know, asked him if I could practice. And uh, he's like, because I rode my bike there. He's like, go ride around, do some laps. I'm going to watch you, make sure that you're good, you know, good enough to ride (laughs) it. And then uh, I rode it and I came back and he's like, all right, we ride Tuesdays and Thursdays after three o'clock. And that was it. And then I went and cool, that was your foot years. in the door, huh? Yeah. And then he late years nice. later he goes, You lied to me. I go, What? He goes, You never went to Loretta's. And I was like, I was trying. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually how I uh got to ride all the local tracks around here, you know, all the private tracks, because Mark knew everybody. And then we we got to a point where he knew me well enough, he was like it was actually once I turned 18. He goes, you're 18 now? And I go, yeah. He goes, all right. On Wednesdays, we go. I go and ride tracks down the shore. And he goes, but uh, I'll, we'll take my truck and I'll pay for gas, but you got to load the bikes and drive. And I was like, <laughs> done. <laughs> so that's, I'd show up, wash the bikes off, <laughs> load them up in the truck. And then when he got done with work, we'd head out to ride. Well, what were your track? Were they like tracks you had to poach, like on you know, person's, you know, private land. Cause that's how it was in the, where I grew up in Ohio. It was always riding on these kind of areas that were sketchy to where I remember I had an area where 
there was two sets of train tracks. So on the other side of the track is where we had our, our tracks laid out. Well, I'd park on the other side of the tracks with my pickup backed up with the with the ramp already on it. Uh-huh. And then if the cops came, I just I, I figured out it. how to just double jump both sets of tracks and just nice. load up and roll out. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, luckily, and because of knowing those guys, uh, we were going to like people's yard tracks. Because Mark had raced forever and knew everybody, you know, so he knew everybody with a track. So, uh, like I said, on Wednesdays, we'd just go and hit somebody else's track up, you know, and just ride there for the day. So I was very, very lucky uh, being around those guys. Like I said, Mark had a track. Uh, My friend Al, he still has, actually, Mark still has a track. So does Al. Um, And then there was another track right around the corner from my parents' house. And then the everything else we rode, you know, in this area or up North Jersey was like um, sand quarries or something like that where you would get, we'd get chased sometimes or, you know, same thing, park our trucks like wherever so you could ride, you know, back and get to them. But uh, yeah, and actually that guy, the guy I rode with most is Mark Waldell who works for Western oh, yeah. Power Sports. I was going to say you may know. So he was my su- really close friend um where as soon as I'm a year older than him or about that when he turned pro he and I just went to every national and arena cross that we could go to by ourselves uh once he got old enough. So that was like my partner to go with, you know, to all these nationals and basically I'd ride uh, sometimes he'd ride 125 and I'd ride 250 and then we'd pitboard for each other. Uh, so that was our, <laughs> that was our little crew there. We had some other people. Oh, Dave Janolfi. Yeah. Um, he grew up right around here too and rode with us all the time. Yeah. Speaking of goggles, right? I mean, that yeah, he's exactly. definitely one of those guys that I'm sure was probably stressing quite a bit, you yep. know, at those mud rounds. Yeah. <laughs> I met him uh, when he was on eighties. I had just gotten on the one twenty fives, and he was just an 80 kid. Uh, when I met him. So that's funny. Um, so do you do a lot of video as well or? No, I don't, I don't do any video. Like that's kind of one of the things I stay away from just cause I don't know. I feel like it's hard to do. I mean, it's hard enough to be a, a good writer to do, be a good videographer. It's just too much, you know? So I feel like I've decided I focus, choose one thing, focus on that. And that's partly why I decided to leave Pit Pass Moto. I just decided, you know, I've been doing it for two and a half years. Yeah, it was it was fun, you know, and I feel like I did some, put some great stuff out there. Hopefully it's, you know, somewhat timeless where people can discover it a couple of years down the road and it's still relevant. Uh, but I really want to focus more on, on writing. And so, yeah, being able, kind of walking away from that, I'm going to refocus. And as a result, like it was, it was weird timing, but... You know, I let that go, and the eBay Motors got you know my contract with them. They said, "Hey, you want to go from?" Because I was doing every two weeks, I'd write a piece for them. He's like, "Would you be interested in going to weekly?" And I'm like, "Absolutely." So it's kind of like, cool, sort of solved itself. You know, like it sort of replaced what I had with Pit Pass, and um, yeah, so just gonna keep focusing on as much writing projects as I can get. So, um, and this may sound weird, but I would say writing initially would have been 
magazines and stuff, which there are less magazines. So like, yep. what do you, you're writing for websites or what exactly would you be writing for? Kind of both. I mean, I do write for, I mean, there's a magazine like Vana, which is still in print. I'm sure you've probably seen that before. You know I mean? It's just yeah. a beautiful, you know, coffee table style book. And so those pieces I kind of cherish as, you know, those are the ones that I'm like, wow, that's a, that's kind of a bucket list piece, you know, to write for that magazine and have my name show up on the masthead, you know, and, yeah, and it's something I'll be able to carry around, but, but you're right. There's a, but there's a ton of blogs out there now and like every brand for the most part typically has a blog on their website and they want SEO help. And so there will be a thought thought piece I'll do like a subject piece for a brand that hopefully gets people when they're doing research to, you know, like I'll use DinoJet as a perfect example, you know, like they're <clears throat> very specific products for UTVs, you know, like uh, fuel, fuel inject, fuel products, fuel tuning products. I was going to say so we deal with are them at their, the shop. Yeah. So when you're like, people are doing their research, you know, if you write a piece that's kind of an informative educational piece that's living on the DinoJet blog, then hopefully they end up there. You know, like it's they're doing their research. Oh, they happen to land on DinoJet. I'll buy a DinoJet part. So that's kind of the idea behind that. That's that's really the 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 premise behind the term content marketing. I mean, that's really what that is. It's just repetition of useful information, informative information, uh, lifestyle information that kind of humanizes, gives the brand, yeah, just a human element. Because I, let's face it, a lot of brands you feel like they're just they're kind of devoid of that. They don't really have a human face to them where the brands that to me are my favorite, you know, like a fast house. I just feel like they have a soul. They have, you know, they feel like, they feel like they have some people behind that you, you can kind of relate to. Which and so th this is kind of why, um, people, uh, or companies align themselves with influencers, right? Because there's not, yep. it's bringing the human element to it. And, People are like, I like this person, and they say this about that. And so it's like you said, versus just reading an advertisement or, uh, you know, the packaging. You know, it's at least some kind of a, for lack of a better word, like a review or at least, a, you know, a human perspective on the whatever it is, the product, versus just like a explanation of what the product is. Yeah, like I think it could feel it feels a little bit more neutral, like if that's even correct. But yeah, I'll use an example. I was recently able to go to the Harley Davidson 120th anniversary festival in Milwaukee this past summer last year, and uh, you know I was I was part of a I went for rideapart.com, you know another like online sort of news website. And so I was writing a piece to cover it. Well, as as part of it, I got to ride the new CVO bikes. Awesome. And in the group that I was with were a bunch of YouTubers, you know? And so it was, it was totally eye-opening for me to kind of hang out with, you know, I thought it would be all traditional media people, you know, like people that work for, like, like I was going for Ride Apart for other magazines, motorcyclists, whatever, you know, but it was half the people were influencers. And what I, what I learned from them is, is that people, the, the value of these influencers is, is they don't, they're not kind of beholden to sponsors or a brand. So like, I'll use this guy named Tall. You know, like he came there and he's like, I just tell how it is. He goes, if I get on the bike and it feels like shit, I'm going to say it feels like shit. And that's why people follow him. Yeah. And I feel like that's where like mainstream media is kind of losing their way because they're so beholden to sponsors that they, it just directs too much of what they're doing, you know, and it makes yeah. them biased. Let's face it. 
And so, which I get it. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to stay alive, but it doesn't, it's not helpful, you know, in a lot of ways. And so I think that's where the rise of these influencers, these YouTubers where, I mean, yeah, it's, it, you're getting real information and they're not sugarcoating it. And so I, I think there's, that's the shift I see in media where like the tr- mainstream media is just kind of getting falling farther and farther behind. Yeah. In my and, mind. And even for companies, right. Instead of producing their own content and trying to build up their own, you know, following, they're just like, let me let uh, Tall ride this bike. He's got a million yep. subscribers, so there's a million people will pretty much almost get in front of. And like you said, if he said if he likes the thing, and he gives it a good review, then all those people, you know, have that outlook on it. So I think it's definitely I mean, it's risky. And they don't, it is risky if he doesn't like it also, but they yeah. also don't have to pay anybody to produce anything. They're not coming out yep. of pocket for a camera guy and an editor, any of that. Uh, it's just let this guy go and do his thing. So it is a little more turnkey. I guess you just have to be confident in your product. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Because yeah, I mean, I'll even go further. Like that guy tall, I was telling you about like, he's, I mean, there's, they'll give them a whole bike, you know, to take for a month, you know? And so that's where I'm like, man, that really is like, you have to believe in your product to be all in on this type of strategy because it can certainly backfire, you yeah. know, if, you're, if your product's garbage. So, but you, you go works, a little early. Works. Yeah. You go a little early and give them a product that's not quite hammered yeah. out yet. And that could be the end of it, you know, because a lot of bad press right off of the rip and you, you know now you're fighting yourself out of a hole yeah i've always been like this is kind of weird but there's that saying you know like any press is good press and I, I don't believe that personally i feel like that's just too far like i don't want to have a like i wouldn't want to be part of a brand that is using negativity and, and yeah. bad press to build themselves up like it's just not something that i would feel good about so but that's just me personally you know so <laughs> i feel like that's uh, if you can pick the ball up and run with it and not let it destroy you, then sure. But, you know, a lot of times, and if the narrative gets out there, you know, it's hard to get retractions because the, the initial thing negative gets out there. And then, you know, it, we have, we see it with everything, right? Something gets said and then nobody waits to see what the actual outcome was. They're just outraged about the initial statement. So then they're like, we don't like this guy. And it's like, it turns yeah, out that's not even on. what happened. Yeah. Just piling on like it just, you know, that's, that's the way it seems to happen. Knee jerk piling on. But yeah, like no waiting and figuring out and yeah. getting all the facts. It's just yeah. jump on. What, then this might be sidetracking, but what happened to uh, Alta? I feel like. They never really got negative press. I don't know why I was thinking that, but like that, they were just like a couple of years ahead of their time. And now all of a sudden the electric market is being filled, but that's really weird. They went away um, as quick as they did. Yeah. I think it just, you know, too soon, you know, like ahead, like you said, ahead of their time, probably made some, you know, find some mistakes along the way. I think probably when you start, you're building a bike from scratch and then all of a sudden you have an order for whatever, 3000 of them. And you got to come up with that money. And that's probably a tough situation to be in. You know, I think yeah. some of these companies don't realize they're not prepared for that trajectory where it, it just grows really quickly. And 
gets them in a hole. I think from what I've understand, brand that's happened to some, you know some brands here and there in our industry. You just got to do the Harley thing and be like, we're producing this many a year, and if the price goes up, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's what it is. Uh-huh. There is a ton of electric bikes though at that AM Expo. I couldn't believe oh, really? how many. Oh, just so many, and non-electric brands that were just never heard of them, like full-size dirt bikes from China that were just like this brand, like BK BKM or something like that. I'm like, what? I mean, it's just amazing. Like it looked like a seven-year-old, you know, a KTM or something, where they're just reverse engineering these things and just cranking them out, you know, because they probably don't have any regulations that are as stringent as here, to where they're just. I mean, just, yeah, you wouldn't believe how many dirt bikes brands are out there right now. I did some shows in China and we jumped at like their national motocross championship. And uh, the first guy is on like a Honda, he's gone. And then everybody else is on those Chinese bikes. And I'm just like, don't jump that double. (laughs) Like (laughs) like, that thing may break, don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, foot pegs are sagging after a couple jumps probably, you know. I was blown away that they were racing those. Um, and then I was like, maybe I should race in China because maybe that first guy will beat me. I don't know. If I may be able to take the rest of these guys. <laughs> I'll be factory CPB or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. And then there's like, yeah, some of the, I think the Arctic Leopard, like I saw those. and They just raced their car. Oh, yes. So they did. And then. One other brand, let's see, that was Arctic Leopard. Well, of course, Cove's not electric. Cove, I guess, is how it's pronounced. But, but yeah, brands like that. There was just tons of of uh, dirt bikes. It just blew me away. I was like, wow, I, I had no idea that this market had blown up that that quickly. Yeah, yeah, which is makes me, like blows my mind that Alta just like literally missed the window by like two years. Yeah. That's crazy. Kind of um, like Cannondale, maybe a little, huh? They just seem like they were ahead of well, their time, but the, maybe not. <laughs> the Cannondale, though, poor uh, Jeff Gibson never finished a moto on that thing. Because that was the same time frame when I was still racing. And oh, yeah. Gibson went from, like, you know, doing fairly well to getting that ride and then just couldn't even finish a moto. I think, wasn't Keith Johnson one of those? Uh, Cannondale riders too. He might have been. I just remember. I think they're out of Connecticut. Yeah, no, they're up in this yeah. uh, neck of the woods. Um, I just remember him because he was semi-local, um, so I'd see him all the time at stuff. Uh, and then the poor Cannondale deal, and I was like, oh, seemed cool at first. <laughs> that that was the same era of uh, Husky coming back with the DKNY Husky. And that actually, yeah. so they worked with Vertucci or something, who's right in Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania as well. Is it, oh, is it Farachi? Farachi, that? that's what it was. Fast by, fast by Farachi. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, it's funny, there's a lot of motocross, uh, like, history up in the northeast here, even though you wouldn't think it. Um, even... Uh, and I'm sure you'll probably know this, Tim Ferry rode for Rossini Racing Products. Oh, yeah, RRP, yep. Which was, like, literally 25 minutes away from my house now. Uh, It's gone now. (laughs) It's some kind of event center. If you go there, it's like an artsy event center. 
the shop. <laughs> but um, there was like a pipe brand out of like New York that that was always that was popular back in the day, and I just can't think of it. Like they made those super trick cone not pipes, Bills? Like handmade. No, it wasn't Bills. It was like out of like Western New York. DEP. Yeah, maybe that was it. Yes, I think that's who it I was. I think so. But they weren't they cool looking, like handmade, yeah. like cone pipes. Yeah, that was lots of little small brands like that that just, yeah. I totally had forgotten about. You know. Yep. Yep, and Boysen's right here, or not right here, but pretty close. I'm good friends yep, with Glenn. Yeah, Doc, Doc Boysen, he's definitely somebody I raced against quite yep. a bit too. So. I know Dog. I raced against Dog. I'm good friends with the younger brother, Glenn, uh, who is now the engineer at Boysen. Um, I finished second. No, I beat Dog for the Hurricane Hills Track Championship because I <laughs> solely because I showed up to more races than he did. Because every time he showed up, he would just smoke me. And we had this one half an hour race there. And I uh, was like, could stay like a little bit behind him. And I, every time I'd try to pull up on him, he'd like look over and like pull away. And uh, he goes, man, you almost had me if that race was a little longer. I was like, that race would have had to have been an hour longer for you to get tired enough. <laughs> I was like, I watched 30 plus. This is at the time I'm like 19 or something. I go, I watched 30 plus. I said, you got the exact same lead on that guy and just sat there. And I know I'm going faster than him. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're just riding what, how fast you need to go. And he just smirked at me and then walked away. He didn't ever said anything. I was like, yeah, he was one of those guys that was just sneaky fast, you so know, fast. but super smooth on the bike, yeah. just good form. You know, I felt like he had that classic, you know, David Bailey style, which is what like I grew up trying to emulate like him and Johnny O'Mara and a little bit of Jeff Ward. Like we used to do, try and emulate the Wardies. Do you ever, you ever do that where you put your foot on the air when you're coming into a turn, <laughs> I, you know, like off a double? I haven't, uh. It's been a long time, and I never think of it when I'm at any place to do it. I'm never like, put your leg out in the air. It never happens. But yeah, I feel like Jeff Ward was the master of that. Like he just he was so you know his short, he was his stature, so he couldn't really he had to jump the whoops a lot, and then but he just had such good like clutch and throttle control where he would just yeah. come in almost like a Cooper Webb kind of style where he'd just come in really tight and just like just pivot the bike like unbelievably quickly you know? you know and so he was just amazing in the turns you bringing that up makes me so i grew up watching those guys but i obviously didn't know the things that i get now about riding and racing and it's like i wonder if i went back and watched if i noticed a lot more stuff like that you know, because I'm probably more looking into style and lines and techniques and stuff like that now, because like, you know, like to me, I mean, Jet and Kenny are like the ultimate styles. Those guys are carrying yeah. so much speed and just so smooth and do little things nobody else is doing that you don't really catch on to until you like pay close attention. Then you go, oh, that's where they're making the tenths of a second every lap. To me, like Jet, the most thing that stands out to me is like, I mean, I, I like, I'm the type of person, like, I just devour like every second of like race day live, like on Saturday for the races. Like, I'm watching all the stuff yeah. in practice. Cause to me, that's where you see all the cool stuff because they're trying new rhythm yeah. sections. But Jet, I just swear, like, he just somehow has the ability to stay, like, even a good guy like Plessinger or Anderson. 
he'll be three, four feet lower off the same jump and just straightforward momentum. It's just like he doesn't go up, he goes forward. And I don't know how he does it, but it's just – and maybe it's using his legs or whatever, but I feel like it just has to be – you have to be so confident in your ability to go off a big triple jump and know that you're going to land it perfectly timed yeah, and scrub off that much speed and stay and keep your forward momentum. Yeah, I mean that's what just blows my mind. Come in way hot <laughs> and just chop on the face and carve yeah. the hell out of it. Especially so like on you the supercross rhythm section. What's that? Especially on a supercross track where everything's oh, yeah. so tight, it's like one thing to jump things; it's another thing to actually flow through it, like you're saying. Yeah, and I feel like he just like that last week was a good example because there was like what. 13 or 14 jumps and one straightaway to where like those rhythms, like you add that up over time, those like 10th of a seconds where he's staying, you know, that much lower and just keeping his forward momentum. That just adds up to, that could be a half a second right there. in that one straightaway, you know, it's just kind of, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That rhythm section was gnarly because it was so long that it was, once you got that much momentum, it was easy to be like just a teeny bit too much throttle and end up in the face of the, you know, the quad. Yep when you only wanted to triple. So I, I was like, man, that's... And I guess they were saying, which is true, if they'd made him a little less peaky, you know, or gnarly, it probably would have been a little bit easier, but, I mean, other than the couple of people that got knocked out or whatever, it was a good separator. <laughs> it's funny, though. I look at the track. The biggest difference to me, like, in addition to the bikes, of course, back when, in the 80s when... You know, like, for example, I remember, like, I raced 89 East Rutherford. You know, like, I got fifth in that race, you know. And awesome. uh, the tracks were just, they didn't flow. You know, like, they yeah, never flowed. No. Like, they flow so nicely now. Back then, I felt like everything was these weird, like, I don't know what you want to call them, termite mound looking. I mean, everything was peaky and just did not flow correctly. So, like, to get your bike down in these, between these jumps and, to have any kind of flow, like I watch those old videos and I'm like, God, we look like we're going so slow, yeah. you know, but that's just the bikes and the tracks, you know, at the time. So, but yeah, now, like, I feel like their speeds are so much higher because everything is more rounded and they just, they flow through yeah. stuff better. And everything's set to go. Like you said, when, uh, back then you were, they didn't have the rhythm sections. So it's like, you said you have this peaky thing to just slow people down. And then, like, you know, I remember they used to do the whoops on, they had them, like, staggered. They were on each side or whatever, <laughs> instead of being, like, a whole whoop. And, you know, it was just they were still trying to figure out exactly, like, what type of obstacles, um, you know, we can make. Yeah, I think my last Supercross I ever did was the 1994. It was actually 90, no, it was 95. So, 94, I got, I got just enough points to get national number 90 for 95 so i was like awesome. all pumped I'm like i got my second national number and then i, I broke both my wrists at an arena uh. cross and so like that was kind of just the beginning of the end so i go to try and race some more super crosses i'm floundering i'm, I'm like over jumping stuff i'm casing things because my wrists hurt i'm afraid i'm gonna re-break them but we went to charlotte and that year in 1995 the track was just like excite bike just peaked uh -huh. jumping up on the top of tabletops and just i mean i was just remember being like petrified that i was gonna like break my wrist again so i was like yeah this is i think it's time to probably hang it up you know and then back then we were doing i was riding you could ride both classes yeah so i'd ride 125 and 250 so like go to my heat race on the 125 and then 
get off the bike, get on a 250. And I mean, that's yeah. hard enough to do as it is, you know, like retime everything on the yep. track. And <laughs> what would you ride first in practice? I think it was always 125 first. Oh, the practice two- order. Yeah. So I raced uh, 125 250s and I learned very quickly that I needed to ride my 250 first or mm. I was going to over jump everything. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true because I think that's I actually when I did I think I rebroke one of my wrists at a local race at Troy, Ohio, uh, Kenworthy's because of that exact thing. I was riding both 125 and 250 and I like hop back on my 125 thinking I was on the 250 in my mind and I just mm. blipped a triple and, you know, faced it and just yeah. snapped, you know, <laughs> just yeah. the brain lapse, you know. 125s, you had to hit everything wide open in whatever gear it was. And then if you rode the 250 like that, it's like you're going out into the flats. And like you said, if you forget and chop at all on a 125, not going to happen. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, that was... I mean, that's what you did when you're a privateer, I think, in that in that era, you know, because they allowed it and you can, oh, I can make more money. And you know, yeah. so I just get into the night program on the on the 250, I can at least get some money and then I'll yeah. focus on 125 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are the Iron Man days. I know uh, you mentioned it before. Barry did that a lot. And um, we even, uh, I think... Somebody just posted something about that. And I don't remember if at the time, because I do know like Hurricane Hills, they used to start the pro class at noon. Pro practice would be at noon, like in the middle of the the order. And they literally changed it the year I turned pro. <laughs> I, was ex- I was like, yeah, noon. And then they were like, we changed it. Pro runs same schedule. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but, um... <laughs> So I don't know if Englishtown used to do that or if nights after or races after supercrosses, they would just hold the um, pro class. And then mm-hmm. we'd get he'd like call the track and be like, we're whatever, two hours away. And they would be on the loudspeaker like, so uh, last night at Pontiac, Michigan, which is like friggin 20 hours away or something. They're like, <laughs> Barry got fourth. He's on his way. Now they're in, you know, Pennsylvania. And I'm like, what? And they would just hold practice and everything until they pulled in, and then they would run practice and the promotos. That's awesome. <laughs> dude. What a legend. He's amazing. Yeah, and he's definitely dude. one of the, oh, just keeps going, you know, like this unreal how long he's been riding a dirt bike <clears throat> and racing a dirt bike, I should say. And he's, he's still so fast. And he never, yeah. like, so uh, when I was racing Arena Cross, I didn't, I didn't make the main, and me and Waldell were watching from the stands and um barry hole shots this arena cross and he's winning he's gone and we're like barry's about to win this arena he falls over i'm like i've watched (laughs) this dude for my whole life i've seen him fall over like three times probably and i'm like so bummed for him i thought for sure he was about to win that arena cross he was always i just remember like i was one of those guys and i think barry probably too like we didn't really get the best starts in like outdoor nationals in 125 class. And so felt like there's so many times where him and I would just be coming through the pack, you know, together, but he was a difficult guy to pass. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he's so consistent, you know, like he just hit his marks all the time. Yeah. And he just, like you said, he rarely messed up, you know, it was hard. He was a hard guy to pass. He doesn't look like he's going fast. If you were to watch him, you're like, 
oh, he's doing all right. And then you try to follow him and you're like, damn, <laughs> just very quiet on the bike, you know, like yep. no extra moves, nothing. And just like you said, always same laps. I'm like, holy shit. A 10,000 hour rule, right? Like he's, what, how many think, hours do you think oh he's my had? Probably? God, dude. And on <laughs> Suzuki's like a million hours on Suzuki's alone. Yep. <laughs> how much of suzuki's contingency money do you think goes to barry probably like a quarter of it all goes to barry he just keeps winning it man what do you think he's probably got to make a good 20 20k off of that don't you think maybe maybe i would imagine mm-hmm. i mean he plays the game well as far as contingency races and stuff was always at all the series races and uh He's got to have some kind of deal, right? Or why would he still be running Suzuki's? <laughs> Is he still out of the same shop, too? Like Bromley or something like I, that? He's forever? I think so. Didn't his family own it? I, I think don't his, know. I, I thought don't remember his, that, but... Maybe he just worked there or something? I don't know what... I thought he had some kind of connection more than just riding for him, but... Um, all right, well, let's. Uh, what do you got coming up, and where can everybody find you? Yeah, so um, the easiest way to find me is you can just Google. Well, you can go to my portfolio, dalespangler.com, and I have all my work on there. My business name, Buzz Media, buzzmediacontent.com. If anyone's interested in working with me on some, if there's brands out there, or even dealers, you know, like it doesn't matter, like I'll do. I'll work with anybody, you know, if the project looks like it's going to be fun and it's something that, you know, my biggest thing is like, I want to work, I like to work with brands that are just, that kind of get it, you know? And so I've been lucky that way to be able to work with a lot of great brands already. Like you kind of mentioned some of them like Onyx and, you know, DinoJet and um, this, you know, eBay Motors contractor. So it's been, yeah, I mean, it's, it's slowly been growing and, it's nice to do things that I feel like give back to the sport that's been pretty much my whole life, you know? So, um, at this point, I just like doing things that are like feel good projects, you know, like that, that's kind of what I was doing with the podcast there for a while, just trying to give something back and shine a light on people like yourself, you know, that we had on that are out there doing cool stuff to build up our, our sport and our industry. Um, you can also follow my, my social media. The only thing I'm on now is Instagram at Dale Spangler. Um, not really too active on there, really, but um, yeah, you just kind of look for my stuff on the interwebs. Awesome, sounds good. Um, thank you, everybody, for watching. And yeah, if you got any uh, questions or anything for Dale, either shoot them to me or find him yourself. And uh, I'm sure people will be like, "How do I make a living writing stories for motorsports?" <laughs> Yeah, hit me up. I'm always I'm I'm always love talking to people about, you know, I've had some people recently reach out to me through LinkedIn and asking how they can get into power sports and you know, I'll hop on a call like no problem. I love I'm an open book with that and I enjoy helping I guess you say I think the term's connector, you know, like I love connecting other people. If I if I can't do a project or I don't feel like I'm the right person for a project, I'll always try and recommend somebody else and and I feel like that's come back to me in some cases too where people have recommended me and so just trying to kind of, I don't know, help each other out, you know, like, why not? I feel like we need more of that these days. A hundred percent. That's amazing. Cause that's not a, um, perspective that, that a lot of people have. I feel like a lot of people are too much like other people getting stuff is going to take away from me or getting into the business or whatever. And I think 
probably more often than not, it's more helpful helping people because then at least they have uh, good words or they will think to maybe refer you as well. Yeah, I just think that like we just need more transparency, um, you know, and honesty. Like, like I said, if I feel I don't feel good about a project or I feel like I'm not the right person, like I have no problem saying I don't think I'm the right person. You know, like and to me, that's very refreshing. You know, like I'd rather have somebody tell me that than say, yes, I can do it. And then not really knowing how to do it. And they have to go figure it out. You know, like to me, I just, uh, I don't know, that's where I'm at. Like, I don't want to have to deal with that stress. So like, if I'm don't feel like I'm the right person, I'll, I'll admit that. And, and, uh, that's okay. You know, cause I feel like, like you said, it's other people have given me work, you know, in, in return. And, and so I feel like that's one of those things where sort of pay it forward and hopefully it comes back to you. There you go. We'll leave it with that. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching and, uh, we will see you next time.